Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 44. Isaiah, the 44th chapter. While the Bible does not come out directly and say that Cyrus is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope that you can tell by reading from 40 to 49 that you read about Cyrus, then you read about Christ. Then you read about Cyrus, then you read about Christ. Then you read about Cyrus, then you read about Christ. As it goes back and forth in the prophet, Isaiah is looking forward 100 to 200 years to see Cyrus and looking forward 700 years to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Mention will be made of an everlasting salvation. Well, that's a lot longer than getting out of Babylon. And there'll be justification mentioned. And there'll be righteousness mentioned sometimes. It's the righteousness of Cyrus. Because Cyrus was the righteous tool used by God to punish the persecutors of his church. And then at other times, it will be the righteousness of an everlasting sort that we want to stand before God. My brethren, we have 53 verses before us and not very many minutes. And so we're going to have to cover these chapters rather quickly. Please don't be discouraged with me. It's not because I wouldn't like to take two or three sermons for these kind of chapters, because I rather would. But my life is shortening. And if I were to do two or three sermons per chapter, I might die in the book of Isaiah. And I don't say that foolishly. I have set a goal, and I want to stick to it. So that means I shouldn't have any longer of an introduction. We have 28 verses before us here in Isaiah chapter 44, and they are not short little verses like the last half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. They are meaty verses. May the Lord bless us in them. Isaiah 44 should be, if you love the God of the Bible and love glorying in Him, should be one of your favorite chapters in the Bible. God comforted his people with Cyrus and mocked idolaters and counselors for knowing nothing. This is our God. This is how he speaks. This is how he wrote the Bible. It's a shame that it's hardly preached anymore from passages like this. Verses 9 through 20, in the extended mockery and ridicule of idolatry, has long been one of my favorite places to read, as the Lord makes it rather insanely ridiculous to be an idolater and he doesn't make fun of the idols nearly as much as he makes fun of those worshiping the idols it's a great chapter it's a great chapter there's so much more that could be said in the way of introduction there's so many chapters that we have already read that bear on isaiah 44 and you will need to consult an extended outline for that uh, those relationships already in the book of Isaiah. To fully appreciate the value and power of this chapter, a person needs to learn about Cyrus the Great. That is why I gave you an option last evening in your preparations to watch the slides from just a few months ago about Babylon. And I hope you did. A couple that have already spoken to me this morning that did so were blessed by it because it gave them a visual reference point for what pops up in this chapter and the next chapter. Sherry and I followed that along with those two chapters that we could read, 44 and 45, last evening, to great benefit ourselves. 
you should want to punch the air when reading about God raising up Cyrus the Great. Amen. He wasn't Cyrus the Great when he began, but God surnamed him. We're going to run into that. What was his surname? Cyrus, my shepherd. Cyrus, my anointed. Cyrus the Great. He was just Cyrus when he left little tiny Persia, a mere province of Elam in the empire of Babylon. But when he crossed the Tigris after some successes, he was Cyrus the Great, and soon he was Cyrus the Great, the king of the world. Right. He has so many titles. If you were to look up Cyrus II of Persia, and yes, there was a Cyrus before him and his ancestors, but if you were to look him up, you'll find out that he was the king of the world as one of his titles. You need to learn about him because we're going to have him named in this chapter. His name shows up. God named him 100 years before he was born and 160 years before he did what the Bible says he did for God. And that was to take the city of Babylon and release his church, fund their way, and guarantee their protection back to Jerusalem to build the God of heaven a house of worship. The God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the world. Right. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, the Chaldean, Cyrus knew that it was by God's providential blessing on him that he had been so successful. Right. And so did his peers. And so did those who wrote of his victories. They knew that there was a supernatural force involved for him to be able to so easily take Media, take Lydia, and then take Babylon. You need to learn a little bit about him. And a little bit about him was in that slide presentation called Babylon that you can find on their website. And Brother Newell preached an excellent sermon back in 2009 entitled The God of Cyrus, where he gave more details about Cyrus. I'm not going to give very many details about Cyrus. I'm going to put the burden on you to have fun. See, I've already done it. I've had a lot of fun learning about Cyrus. But I want to go through these verses and see, I can't do both. If I start telling you stories about Cyrus, I won't be able to exposit 28 verses. I don't know if I'll be able to anyway. On the way to church today, I told the Lord, it's absolutely impossible, and I don't know how to do it. Help me. I'm just sharing personal prayers with you. Help me. Because there's a lot, of, there's a lot here. He's the main character of these 40s, chapters of Isaiah. For God used him greatly. His commandment to rebuild Jerusalem is what started Daniel's great timeline of prophecy that reached to Messiah. Skeptics and students resent Cyrus for this supernatural prophecy, so they invent other authors of the book, written at different times after the events, and or they deny Cyrus by claiming Usher and Ptolemy's chronology when we get over there to Daniel chapter 9. So everyone is against Cyrus including the skeptics and scorners of this world, and including Bible scholars, except a handful. Right. But we stand on Cyrus. Cyrus was God's shepherd. Cyrus was one of God's favorites. And that's why in these wonderful chapters where God boasts of himself, he talks about Cyrus, and he named Cyrus. And he wants us to rejoice in what this man did by his blessing upon him. Cyrus overthrew the mighty city of Babylon in one night, and the release of the Jews back to their homeland to build a temple to their God is epic in the annals of human history. God loved this event, and he spends these chapters boasting about it. 
Though the name Cyrus is in the pages of Scripture 19 times, most Christians do not know very much about Cyrus. When a man denies the supernatural about Cyrus, which some seminarians do with their three authors of Isaiah, and or they start Daniel's prophecy wrong, like men that train me don't know how to start Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9. They don't understand Cyrus. They don't understand Daniel 9. The ignorance about Cyrus and the ignorance about his role in Scripture is great. Right. We don't want to be. What should we get out of this chapter? There's several goals and reasons. It should build our faith. This is a book that should build our faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We should trust God, who's in charge of this world's course of events. Right. It should build our worship of a God that gloriously declares Himself superior to all competitors, Amen. that there is no God but his, Himself. Amen. It should comfort us when hearing of political change or upheaval, or of military campaigns, because God's in charge of them all. God took Cyrus by the right hand, and God took Belshazzar by his neck and loosed his loins and shook him like a rag doll. His knees were quaking in his party the night that the city of Babylon was taken. Our God is in charge of all politicians and military leaders. It should comfort us. It should gratify our souls to know that God loves his children enough to sacrifice other lives for them and to bring them out of trouble and to put them in their own place to worship him. It should secure our minds, knowing that God can and will overthrow the greatest enemies we might ever have. Right. All glory to God. Amen. Hallelujah for Isaiah 44. What does hallelujah mean? It ends with J-A-H. It is praise to the Lord. Praise to Jehovah. Amen. Because Jah, one time in the Bible, is the shortened version of Jehovah. Because God said, my name is I am that I am. And then one time he told Moses, go tell them, I am sent you. So we have the full version, Jehovah, and we have the shortened version, Jah. We have I am that I am, and we have I am. And God is going to refer to himself by his name in the 40s of Isaiah over and over. Right. First lesson from Isaiah 44 is verses 1 through 5. God's comforting promises of great good to Israel. Verse 1 of Isaiah 44, and I'll read five verses. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am the Lord's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Amen and amen. God's comforting promises of great good to Israel. The previous chapter had ended with Israel being captive in Babylon because of their sins. Remember, verse 28, Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. 
So that's how chapter 43 had ended. So we have a disjunctive opening up 44 because 44 is going to start with goodness. But there wasn't goodness at the end of 43. So that's why we have yet now here. O Jacob, my servant, you're my servant. I had to send you to Babylon because of your sins, but you're mine. I made you and I formed you for myself, as we learn in 43, and as we learn right here in verse 2, and I'm going to bring you out of captivity. And so that's why we have that disjunctive, yet now here, O Jacob, the end of your nation, the end of your church, is not to be stuck in Babylon forever, but I'll bring you out. Yet now here, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. These were the chosen people of God. God had chosen them in the very beginning by setting his love upon them like he had no others. He said that he set his love upon them, though they were the smallest of people, because he would set his love upon them. There was nothing in them for him to love them, and there is nothing in us for him to love us. But he has loved us because he chose us like he chose them. He chose us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore loves us according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. You folks that are captive in Babylon, you're mine. You're my servants. I chose you. I have something far better for you than this terrible captivity by your enemies 900 or 1,000 miles away from home. Verse 2 Thus saith the Lord that made thee, formed thee, which I'll help you, Jacob. Don't worry about things. I'm going to help you. They were gods by providential formation and by God's electing grace. He had chosen them. Since God has made and formed all creation, then it's got to be mean something a little bit different here rather than he just formed them out of the dust of the earth and gave, the, gave them breath and caused them to become living souls. It's got to be a little bit more than that or it wouldn't have any special meaning to separate them from the Babylonians. And there was a great deal of difference. Jeshurun, which is the only time it's spelled this way without an H in the Bible. It's the only occurrence right here. It's got three other occurrences in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a symbolic nickname. It's a pet name for Israel, and it means the upright one. God's not going to forsake his upright one. And when God is speaking kindly of Israel, he calls them the righteous one, the righteous people, the upright people. And so we have Jeshurun in verse 2. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. He's called the church his servant in verse 1. He calls the church again his servant in verse 2. And thou, Jeshurun, upright one, whom I have chosen. You're my servant. I'm your God. I've chosen you. You are upright ones because I've made you so. And you're the only ones that have the proper worship of God on earth. I will deliver you. I will help you. So when you look at that second verse, the words that may be the most meaningful are right smack dab in the middle, which will help thee, fear not. Don't be afraid of your circumstances, because I'm going to help you. We love the word help. How many times do you holler in a week? Yeah, you. Help me. Oh, both of you. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to Mark, but Adam's behind him. Help me. Is anybody going to help me? How many times do you mothers say, is anybody going to help me? Speaking to your children. Well, there's help in the world, and it's from the Lord, and it's for his servants, and it's for his chosen people. He'll help us. Fear not. I've got you covered. This is what the 40s are all about. 
Amen. Comfort ye my people. It's comfort. I've got you covered. I'll take care of you. I'll help you. I'm going to rescue you. Right. Don't worry about anything. And you know what he's, you know he's going to go on and say. He's going to detail how he's going to rescue them, even giving the name of the man who's going to do it. Verse 3, I'll pour water upon him that is thirsty, and so forth. Zion had been captive. The church of God had been captive in foreign and strange Babylon for 70 years, but God was going to help them. They were dried up in a sense. Let's understand this metaphorically. Let's not look at it agriculturally. Let's look at it metaphorically and spiritually. That... I will revive you, and I will send water where there was just dryness. I am going to, make, I'm going to bring back vitality to you in a national and spiritual sense. And he did. Look at verse 5. I mean, that first 5 is, is pretty neat. Verse 5 has four different ways of describing the excitement about being in God's religion again. When they were in Babylon, they didn't get out in the streets and wear big signs saying, I am a Jew, I worship Jehovah, I hate Marduk. I am a Jew, I worship Jehovah, I hate Bel. Two of the chief gods of Babylon. No, they didn't do that. Do you remember how fearful it was to be a Jew in the reign of the Persian Empire a little bit later than this? When Haman had his influence in the government? The Jews could be killed. The Jews have always been a despised people because they worshipped a different God a different way. They were monotheistic and it bothered the nations around them. And so it hadn't been something that you went out in public and did. Do you remember in Psalm 137 where it said, Our captors made us sing us the songs of Zion, making fun of us. Right. And so I want you to understand that. So now what, what happened? Look at these people. There's four different descriptions of them in verse 5. One's going to say, I am the Lord's. What does that mean? I am Jehovah's. And they're going to name their God against the gods of the heathen. I'm not ashamed of Jehovah. I am Jehovah's. I am Jehovah's. What do you want to do about it? Because God was going to rescue them by Cyrus and pour his spirit upon them. And they were going to leave like heroes. Because they were the nation that Cyrus sent back home, subsidized, to build a temple to their, and, a, and worship center to their God. Verse 5, I am the Lord's. Another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. I descend from Jacob. I don't come from you Chaldeans. I descend from Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. He wasn't afraid of his family tree, which they had been. That's what made them Jews. And another shall subscribe with his hand when filling out a survey, when filling out his visa papers, and it says religion. He didn't put down Marduk. He didn't put down Bell. He, he subscribed. I belong to Jehovah. I worship Jehovah. And another would surname himself by the name of Israel. I am Joseph of Israel. He would surname him. No fear, because the Lord is going to pour out his spirit upon them and their offspring. And they would be released with full endorsement by the mighty king Cyrus the Great. It's beautiful. And in the second service today, we will pray for our offspring and for our children and our children's children that God would do verse 3 to them in the second half of it. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Amen. 
So we have Nehemiah's and Ezra's going back and Haggai's and Zechariah's rising up and that temple being built and the worship of God and the excitement, the shout rang in the earth when they laid the foundation of that temple because God had revived them and we want God to revive our families as well. That nation was going to spring up with vitality, national and spiritual vitality, like verse 4 describes. They shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. Have you ever gone to bed one night when it, when it was dark and it rained all night and you got up in the morning and you looked out at your yard? How many inches did it grow in one night? Doesn't it look like it grew an inch overnight sometimes? The sun shines on it. It's greener. Well, that's, you know, sometimes when there's lightning, it can release things in the air. And so it's greener and it's longer. It's springing up. And the Lord, when he pours out his spirit upon a people, and we never want to stop praying. What's the number two measure of higher ground? It's more of the Holy Spirit. Because we need the Holy Spirit. He changes hearts. He brings back vitality. Whenever you feel dull, dry, or bored of being a Christian, it's because the Spirit of God is quenched or grieved in your life. It cannot be said any simpler. It's your fault for grieving the powerhouse of the universe, the person of the universe, and the power of the universe, the Holy Spirit of the living God. He can, he can revive you you'll, so that you'll spring up and you won't be ashamed. I'm the Lord's. Look at the change in these people. Anyway, that's the first five verses. God's comforting promises of great good. And I want that great good for all of you. And I want that great good for our families and for our own souls. Verses 6 through 8. God's unique power of fulfilled prophecies. God's unique power of fulfilled prophecies. Verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call, and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto me. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Amen. That's our God right there in three verses. And it's, you know, when I say a new section, it's not a new chapter. It's just a different angle. Because he told them not to fear in verses 1 through 5, and he tells them not to fear in verses 6 through 8. In 1 through 5, don't fear. I've got good things in store for you. In verses 6 through 8, don't fear. I've detailed the future, and you know there's no God that can do what I can do. I've got it all laid out. And so he appeals to them, you know my prophetic ability, and there's no other God like me that can declare the end from the beginning and the things which are not yet done. And so verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, watch the words carefully, the King of Israel. The Lord is Jehovah. Thus saith God, Jehovah, the king of the captive Israelites in Babylon. I am your king. They have their king, Nabopolassar, Nabonidus, Belshazzar, Cyrus, Darius the Mede, 
you have a king and it's me. And his redeemer, Israel's redeemer, is the Lord of hosts. Your redeemer, your savior, the one that's going to buy you out of captivity, the one that's going to rescue you out of Babylon is the Lord of hosts. So we have the Lord, the King of Israel, and we have the Lord of hosts, and they're both Israel's gods. God. They're both Israel's God. And so you're able to look at that and say, well, that's, that's comforting. How could you fear with those things in place, with Him in place as their God? I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. I am the origin of all things. I am the object and end of all things. Everything exists for me, by me, through me, to me, of me. Yes, amen. Amen, amen. amen Lord. Do, do you know how many verses there are like verse 6 in the 40s of Isaiah? Just enough to make me happy. And a few extra. Because I can't remember them all. But they're wonderful verses. Don't you just want to keep reading that over to yourself? Don't you want to look at it and polish it a little bit? Pull it off the page, rub it in your hands, rub it on your jacket, and look at it again. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, don't you be afraid. I'm your King, and I'm your Redeemer, and I'm Jehovah, and I'm Jehovah of hosts. I've got all the angels working for me. I'm the first, I'm the last, there is no other God, and I'm all yours. I'm all yours. Are you going to live that way? He's all yours? Is God divisible? Is He all yours? And all yours? And all yours? He's all mine. He's all mine. I'm all His. I'm all His. Because if half the things I believe about God are true, if half the things I believe about God are true, I owe Him all of me. That's right. And since everything I know about God is true, I owe him twice of me, but I can only give him one of me. And I love the way we sing sometimes, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We've only got one, so let's just amp it up as if it were more and give him our best. And who, verse 7, I'm the only God, verse 6, verse 7, and who, who is I? Who can do what I do? And so he's appealing to his prophetic power. Remember, the title of this section is God's Unique Power of Fulfilled Prophecies. Who, who is going to tell, who's going to call, who's going to declare it, who's going to set it apart for me? I've already done it. No one else can do it since I appointed the ancient people. That's his people, Israel. You're my people. I'm not going to lose you. You're my people. And they had been his people for a thousand years, a little over a thousand years. Since I appointed them and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto me. I know what's coming. I've already told you, Israelites, what's coming. Who else can declare what's coming? They don't know what's coming. They don't know that Cyrus II of the little tiny province of Persia, of Elam, was of any great importance. He wasn't even to be born for a hundred years. Who else can do this? I've got you covered. Verse 8, fear ye not, neither be afraid. That sounds like redundancy. But he's making the point, there's no reason for you to be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. I've already told you I'm going to rescue you. We had it in chapter 41. Who's going to raise up the righteous man from the east? We already had it in 43. We had it at the end of 42. Of course, 
We had it in 13, 14, 21, 25 about rescue from Babylon. It's already been through these chapters. And so Isaiah is appealing in his preaching message inspired by God for them to remember all that he had said. Ye are even my witnesses. I have exposed myself and told you things that were going to come to pass in the future. And you knew about them in advance. And then they came to pass. What happened to Sennacherib? What happened to Assyria? What happened to Terhak? Hacka of the Ethiopians, what happened to the Egyptians? All declared and all fulfilled. Plus, I've told you what I'm going to do to Babylon, and no other God can do it. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. Amen. Ye are even my witnesses that I'm the only God, because a God is proven by his ability to foretell and bring to pass the future. That is supernatural power. To know the future and the power to bring it to pass. And God had it. And so verses 6 through 8 are God's, in His deity, in His Godhead, His unique power of fulfilled prophecies. Verses 9 through 17. It's just mockery. It's an extended mockery and ridicule of idolatry. Because of what we have in 6 through 8, look at how 6 ends. I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And then verse 8. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So after having declared that there is no other God, he is going to make fun of all the imagined and worshipped gods of the pagans around them, including Babylon, including the Persians, including the Assyrians, all of them. So I read to you verses 9 through 17. The, the ridicule goes all the way through 20, but I have separated verses 18 through 20 because it is a separate lesson of why, why idolaters are so blind. So let's just get their blindness described to us in verses 9 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. I'm supposed to read in the book in the law of God distinctly and give the sense. This is Bible preaching. Verse 9. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. And their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes and he marketh it out with the compass and maketh it after the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, 
with part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This is how God writes the Bible. This is how God's preachers preach. They make fun of false religion. And they don't make fun of the false religion as much as they make fun of the false religionists. Don't forget that. When someone tells you it's okay to make fun of the religion, but don't make fun of the worshipers, turn them back to the Bible. Because the ridicule here is of the worshipers not the idols. It's focused on the worshiper thinking that he has a God that he ought to pray to that cannot profit him. These verses we can cover rather quickly. We've been over them before. They're not difficult. I want you to notice what I just said to you in verse 9. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. It does not say graven images made by men are all of them vanity. It says they that make a graven image are all of them vanity. And let's get one thing clear. In case there's someone listening in radio land that doesn't understand or know us, if it weren't for the grace of God, there we go. And we would be at the front of the line. We'd be sacrificing our children to some false god if it wasn't for the grace of God. We'd be going to Mass twice a day so that we could eat Jesus twice in a 24-hour period. We'd be the best Catholics if it weren't for the grace of God. It's all by His grace that He's opened our eyes, opened our ears, opened our hearts, that we would see, hear, or understand anything. But once saying that, we are not going to apologize about the idiocy and the insanity of false religion. We're going to hold the Bible position on false religion. And so, in verse 9, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity. They are worthless and profitless. They're nothing. And their delectable things shall not profit. Those are their fancy ceremonies and things they go through in the worship of their gods. And if you've ever been to false worship service, it's pretty impressive to your eyes and to your ears and to your senses. There's incense. I mean, to your nose. False worship, even today in America, you go to a Greek Orthodox church, you go to a Russian Orthodox church, you go to a Catholic church, they're swinging incense all around, you see pretty stuff everywhere, you hear pretty music with pretty instruments. It's delectable. It's delightful presentation of religion. Their delectable things shall not profit. They are vain for worshiping a piece of metal or wood, and their ceremonies are no better. And they are their own witnesses. They know that their gods have never done anything. They see not nor know. They, they can touch the eye and they say, you know, that eyeball is just a little bit bigger than the other one. Let me shave a little bit off it. They know that it can't see. He's going to work it. He's going to work you up to the fact that he has blinded them. Right. They're able to see. Depravity is not the inability to reason. Depravity is reasoning and rejecting the reasoning results. It's rebellion. 
And they are their own witnesses. Verse 10, who's done such a thing? Who hath formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? This is a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Only a fool. Only an idiot. Forgive my language. Look at the Who would do it? Right. It's a question. No thinking person would ever do it, is the answer to verse 10. Verse 11, behold, let's look at it this way. Get them all together. All his fellows shall be ashamed. All these guys that work uh, in the occupation of making gods are all going to be ashamed. Because when I unleash Cyrus against the Babylonians, he's going to meet with no resistance. They were toasting their gods. And they fell in one night. They're all going to be ashamed. All the craftsmen, like Alexander the coppersmith, are going to be ashamed and confounded that they were ever involved in telling their rulers and the people, the common people, the populace, that we're going to be rescued by our God when they all fall because their God couldn't save them. They're all going to be ashamed. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Let them give their voice. Let them sell their, their idols. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. That is the result of false religion. God is going to bring to bear terror. And you will be afraid in false religion. You will be afraid and you will be confounded because your religion is not going to stand up to help you. And do you know what it says about our faith of Christianity in the New Testament? If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never be confounded. Amen. You will never be ashamed. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. You're, you're never going to have the rug pulled out from under you. When you meet God, you know His name already, and you know the name of His Son, and His Son is your mediator sitting in His own right hand, and He's got your name written in the book of life, and you will never be confounded or ashamed. Every other religion is going to be shocked. When the Mormons get there and can't find Joe, they're going to look all over for Joe. They're going to put ads in the paper for Joe. Where's Joe? I mean Joseph Smith. And Joe's not going to... They're going to have to go a long way down to find Joe. Because Joe's going to be in the lake of fire. They're going to be confounded and ashamed. And see, this was a little closer to home right here in verse 11. It's all those God manufacturers and craftsmen and in the city of Babylon were going to all be ashamed and confounded that all their trust in their gods did not save them even one full night. They shall be ashamed together. Amen. So let's look at their craft. The smith, the blacksmith, he gets black from all the smoke and soot. The smith with the tongs, both worketh in the coals and fashion it with hammers. He's beaten out a god on an anvil. And he worketh it with the strength of his arms. He's got a bulging bicep. Now, he's the creator of his God. He's got a bicep, and he's using a hammer to hammer out his little God so that he can sell this little figurine at the next fair or in his little God store where you can go buy it. But he's, he beats that thing, and he's breathing hard, and he's sweating, and he gets hungry. Oh, the creator of the God, follow the Lord, the creator of the God needs to take a break and have a bologna sandwich. With the strength of his arms, yea, he's hungry. His strength, I can't do, I can't beat this anymore. I'll start again tomorrow. He drinketh no water and is faint. 
This is the Lord making fun of them. Because that power, the power in the smith, the blacksmith, is greater than the power of what he made. The thing what he made has no power at all. And the Lord's just making fun of the blacksmith, thinking that he's actually making a god. He's getting pooped out himself. And what about his god? Because he's the creator of it. He should have greater energy and strength and, and lasting power than but he, does, he should, and he does, because his, his God doesn't have any. And, and then it moves to some woodwork. Verse 13, the carpenter stretched out his rule. They had tape measures back then. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes. You surprised? And he marked come on, they made pyramids back then. And the Tower of Babel, they had a few tools. Uh, the descendants of Cain were quite accomplished in working in metals and and other things. And he marketh it with the compass and, marketh, and maketh it after the figure of a man. Well, he makes a little human figurine so that you can take it home that it may remain in the house. So you've got this beautiful little cart. This morning we were talking some of the men. Here's a man sitting on his back porch. He's sucking on an RC coal and eating a moon pie and whittling on a stick. And then he takes it in the house and drops down his knees and genuflects before it. It's amazing. A whittler, a woodman, a carpenter, a smith. The Lord's making fun of them all. Right. Why? Because He alone is God. Amen. Our God's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I want to tell you something about the 40s. You can hardly read 10 verses without running into creation. I hope you notice that. He always wants to go back to the foundation, creation. And I know that some of you were disappointed in some recent slides about right side up and an upside down world because I started out with creation versus evolution. I want to remind you about something. That is the foundation that God says is the foundation. And when that gets altered to evolution, it changes everything following behind it. Because then there is no God that can give you His opinions and His rules for how you live. It is foundational that we not only believe it and defend it, but that we embrace it and love it he is the creator and he's going to return to that over and over that it may remain in the house verse 14 he heweth him down cedars and taketh the cypress and the oak which is strengthened for himself among the trees of the forest he has identified among all the trees of the wood which is best for carving into the form of a god and that will last the longest you know, there's a huge difference between an oak tree and a pine tree. And for those of you that burn either one, or burn them, you know the difference in burning, and there's a difference in carving them and having it last. And what rain will do to it? You know, pine's pitiful in comparison. You know, as long as it's inside your walls and you've got drywall and brick around it, it's okay. But if you expose that to much water, it's, it's pitiful. I don't want to get, I don't want to talk about wood. I want to talk about the Lord making fun of them picking their trees, planting them, and raising trees to be gods. Right. Verse 15, then shall it be for a man to burn. Okay, so now we've got wood. We've got a tree. We strip its branches off. We fell it to the ground. And we've got this big log in front of us. Well, I don't need 20 feet for my God. This person's only ordered a five-footer. He wants a five-foot God. And so what am I going to do with the rest? 
He burneth part. Then verse 15, then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. So he starts a fire because he can't keep himself warm in this perfect climate God's given us. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. So he warms himself. Then he bakes bread over this fire. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He carves this thing up and he doesn't have a chainsaw because he's not nearly that bright. But he carves himself a god. He burns part of it for heat. He burns part of it. And he's gonna, the Lord's going to repeat this. And he burns part of it to bake his food and with the leftovers of this wood that he's burned up. Now, if you can burn up your God, it's not much of a God. But he's burned up the material for his God, and with the leftovers, he makes himself a God and worships it. You say, that is just so unkind to idolaters. There's only one answer to that. Amen. We should be unkind. Do you know why? They are without excuse. Because the truth that God of creation, God has revealed to all men. And made it manifest in them. Don't ever forget Romans 1, 18 through 25. They're fabulous verses. God has revealed himself to all men. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day into day utter speech, and night into night showeth knowledge. There is no language nor voice where their preaching is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. The lines and precepts of God's religion have gone through the whole earth. It's appropriate to do just what God's doing here. And you know, it's of great comfort to his people. Because you're sitting there with your family and you're getting this message from Isaiah and you realize that all the neighbors around you worship stuff the smith made or stuff the carpenter made. Children, our God created the heavens and the earth and he's going to do something big. When he says he's going to do something big, he does something big. Remember the Red Sea, children? Remember taking the land of Canaan? Remember opening the River Jordan for us to walk over on dry He can do big things. And he sent Isaiah. This is the biggest book we've had so far, children, except for Psalms. And it's all about the big thing he's going to do for us. Remember Sennacherib, children? 185,000 dead one morning. They were all dead corpses, it said. Right. And Sennacherib had to go back home. Remember what happened to him when he went into his god, Nisroch? Remember, children? This is how we ought to talk. So when our God thunders... There should only be one passage of Scripture you can think of. What is it? Who in here knows it? Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord does this. The voice of the Lord does that. The voice of the Lord does this. That's our God talking. That's our God whispering. Verse 16. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast and is satisfied. Mmm, I'm full. That was a great meal. That's burning up his God, or at least the material for his God. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Don't you love the Bible? Here's your King James Bible. Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Have you ever held your hands out to a fire? Ah, it's in the Bible. I have seen the fire. Verse 17, and the residue thereof, that's the leftovers, the residue thereof he maketh a God. Notice the repetition. We've already had this in verses 14 and 15. Even his graven image, he carves it up for himself. He falleth down unto it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. 
I burned up two-thirds of you, working on you. I got tired. I had to have a break, have a bologna sandwich. I had to get a drink because I was so tired making you into my God. But now I'm going to fall down to you and say, deliver me. Do you know how many are going to meet the terror of the Lord in a day soon and have no helper? And our helper is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And he will not lose one of us. He has sworn it. He is the surety of his people. We are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Without us, he is incomplete. He is coming back with vengeance against all our enemies and all his enemies and will save us with an everlasting salvation, which is described in chapter 45. Verses 18 through 20. We move past the ridicule to the explanation for the ignorance. Why are men so ignorant? Verses 18 through 20, they have not known nor understood. For he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot consider. They all had the opportunity, they all had the chance for Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1, to be true as well as this. Because if you go to Romans chapter 1, it says that God has manifestly made himself known to men, and he calls it his truth that he's revealed to all men so that they are without excuse. But when they chose to rebel against him in Romans chapter 1, and when they chose not to be thankful, their foolish heart was darkened. There's a consequence. There's a chain of events. When, When we quote 2 Thessalonians 2 and we say, God sends them strong delusion to believe a lie, what did they do for God to send them strong delusion to believe a lie? because they received not the love of the truth. Truth was given to them, offered to them, shown to them, and they didn't receive it and love the truth that God offered. So then God sends them strong delusion to do something that they ordinarily, by natural sense, would not do. Just like God hardened Pharaoh. Why would you take your chariot down into the Red Sea with water piled up on both sides after the ten plagues in the land of Egypt? I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. But what did Pharaoh do? I will not let them. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Notice the chain. God does reveal himself by creation, by providence, and by conscience before anyone ever sees a Bible. But what do they do with that offered knowledge? And what they do with that offered knowledge is what comes next. Do they get more truth? Or do they have the truth that they thought they had taken away from them? To whom much is given, much shall be required. To him that hath, more shall be given. And to him that hath not, shall be taken away even that which he hath or which he thinks he has. This is the lesson in both Testaments. They have not known nor understood. On a present tense basis, looking at their little idol, carving on it, they're not thinking about the fact, this is wood. I just burned tooth because God's blinded them. Why? Because when they were outside one night looking up and they saw the stars and they saw the moon and they saw the sun come up and the sun kissed them and the sun caused the crops to grow and a storm and the thunder and the rain and the hydrogen released and the grass growing, they didn't praise God. So they suffer for it. Let us never fail as a church that we appreciate all of creation and glorify Him for all of it. 
they have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? America, just a few just a few decades ago, taught creation. I mean, I guess it's a little more than a few now, decades, but a few generations taught creation, believed creation, and then we decide to throw creation out of school and put evolution in, and so God has blinded men. They don't understand the stuff that's going on today. They don't understand it. They don't grasp the fact that what they're doing is a disgrace to their race, a disgrace to their own bodies, ridiculously incompatible with human nature. It is not convenient, as the Bible says. It's a shame to be doing what they do. Just a few years ago, it was a disgraceful shame. I want to tell you something. No young man came out in the high school I went to. He was building extra doors on his closet. Because if we'd have got such a lad in our locker room, he would have automatically been a transgender. It, total change. Total change. Hit Radio Land, I hope you enjoyed that one. Total change. It's, it's terrible. Verse 20, he feedeth on ashes. I have not exaggerated the ridicule of God, of idolaters, making a God out of wood. He feedeth on ashes. His religion is nothing but ashes. His religion can be burned up. He's feeding his soul on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul. Once you're, you know what? Deception, deception is terrible. We're going to pray in the second service that God will never allow us to be deceived. That he will have mercy upon us and open our eyes and not let us be deceived. To be deceived is to believe a lie is truth, and to believe truth is a lie, and not know the difference. Right. It's absolutely terrible. Amen. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we would be deceived as any, or more. And we want, to remember, we want to tell him that, and thank him for his grace. He has a lie in his right hand and can't let go. He's all cramped up with a lie in his right hand and just keeps doing it, though he burned part of that wood to heat himself, and he burned part of that wood to bake his food. And so we come to the next lesson, verses 21 through 23. God's forgiveness of Israel to cause praise. And when God forgives us, we should praise Him. Amen. Remember these, verse 21, remember these, these. A demonstrative pronoun identifying some plural, something or other. The idolaters in context from verse 9 down through 20. These idolaters, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. You have a different kind of religion. I'm your God. They have false gods. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. 
And these words can be fully true if looking at nothing more than forgiving their sins as a nation, just like Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 20, and God delivering them out of Babylon because their chastening was over because He had forgiven them. He had redeemed them out of the house of bondage, not Egypt this time, but Babylon this time. And so these three verses are, O Jacob and Israel, you are my people. I formed you. I'm your God. I won't forget you, but I want you to remember these other religions and who they're trusting in compared to me. I have forgiven you your sins. It has looked like their gods are more powerful than your God because you are captive in Babylon, but I will deliver you out of Babylon and set you free. And it's time for you to start singing, shouting, and lifting up the voice as verse 23 describes it. You know, we've run into those kind of verses all the way through Isaiah. When we sing, we ought to sing with our might. We ought to sing with volume if we have the power to do so. And with great joy in our hearts because of what God's done for us. Verses 24 through 26. God's mockery of diviners and Babylon's wise men. Verse 24. God's mockery of diviners. Those are false prophets, soothsayers. Those practicing witchcraft, prognosticators, fortune tellers. God's mockery of those diviners and of wise men. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. Notice, it's all personal toward Israel. He identified them by name in verse 21, O Jacob and Israel. He identified them by Jacob and Israel, closing out verse 23. Thus saith the Lord in verse 24, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things. Here comes creation again. That stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Now here's something else he does that he considers right along with creation. That frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad. That turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish. That confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. And so that's 24 through 26. I know it doesn't end with a period, but I'm going to show you the distinction in just a moment, because it gets more detailed in verses 27 and 28. In verses 24 through 26, I am your God. I formed you and chose you and made you mine from your very beginning, from the womb. I'm the creator of the universe. I am nothing like those other gods that I've told you to remember. I love to frustrate them and their religions. Don't you worry about the fact that the temple to Marduk and the temple to Bel in the city of Babylon is huge and beautiful. And the ceremonies that they have there are delectable. I frustrate their diviners, the tokens of the liars, when they open their goat under a full moon and pull out its liver and spread its liver to look for directions to know what they ought to do, I let them see something in that liver. And then they go do it and run into disaster. I love to frustrate them. I love for those priests to throw up their hands. What's going on here? That frustrated the tokens of the liars. Check that caterpillar. I know this sounds like the farmer's almanac. Be careful when you read that book. Check the, hair, the length of the hairs and the belly of the caterpillar. 
the tokens of the liars and maketh diviners mad. False prophets, they get mad. They're confused that turneth wise men backward. Call, how many times did Nebuchadnezzar call in all the soothsayers, all the Chaldeans, all the magicians, and say, would you tell me what this dream meant? Well, tell us the dream, O king, and we'll be happy to lay a lie on you. Well, it's passed from me. If you can tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'll know the interpretation might have a little bit of probability. And he calls them all in, and they couldn't do a thing. There's only one man in the kingdom that could do it, and that was Daniel. Let's all be like Daniel. We have a bunch of Daniels in this church. Let's be like Daniel. What can you do today to be like Daniel? It starts with an E in the first word and S in the second word. Don't hurt me. I'm hurting right now. Be of an excellent spirit. So the Bible says about Daniel. He, I know my questions are crazy. To be of an excellent spirit. Right. Right. And the Lord will be kind to a man that's of an excellent spirit. Daniel, Daniel could figure those things out. I love verse 25 of Isaiah 44. See, I want to pull that one off the page and polish it up as well. That frustrateth the tokens of the liars and maketh diviners mad, turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish. Here comes our world, you know, all their scientists, that it's all the result of a big bang, and that we came from monkeys, and slime before that, and snails, or whatever, they've come up with this particular year, and it's going to be global warming while everyone's freezing, and there's snow falling everywhere, and the ice cap has doubled in size, and you know, and, and red meat's bad for you this year, but let's, o- let's open Outback Steakhouse, and out- red meat's good for you, and now you shouldn't eat pork. You know, unless you strip the pork of all fat, you can't eat pork. It's the new white meat, as long as there's no fat. Well, that's what we raise pigs for, is fat. And just on and on it goes. And it, it starts out with a false religion, right. evolution, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish. Belshazzar has a thousand lords, not a thousand common people, a thousand lords in his palace. And he has called for the vessels out of Jerusalem that have been there for 70 years. He wants them pulled out of the vault. And he raises a toast to his God with vessels that were used for Jehovah to a thousand lords. And a hand came out on that wall. And none there, all the soothsayers and magicians and counselors and advisors of the king of the greatest city and empire on earth could not tell what was on that wall. And that king's loins were loose. The Bible says those words. And his knees knocked together. Verse 25, couldn't do a thing. You know, then Daniel said, in Daniel chapter 5, the kingdom is departed from thee, O Belshazzar. That's right. And you know what all the uh, lords would have said after that, right? No way, king, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's crazy. He's one of those crazy Jews. Because they didn't arm their army. Too late. God frustrates those that set themselves against him. That's what we have in Romans chapter 1. He has frustrated them, turned them upside down, backward, make it their knowledge foolish. What they describe as some new phenomenon that's taking the world with transgendering is just folly. 
And it's profane folly at that. Verses 27 and 28. This God, our God, Israel's God. Remember, in verse 24 it said, Thy Redeemer, He that formed thee from the womb, that God, their God, in verse 24, also He confirms His word by His prophets, in verse 26, He performeth the counsel of His messengers, everything that Moses had ever said would come to pass, everything that Isaiah had said would come to pass, everything that Jeremiah said would come to pass, Jerusalem is going to be inhabited. And it's been described already in the book of Isaiah that God is going to get them back to their home and temple worship will be restored. It'll be rebuilt. I'll raise up the decayed places thereof. We've read about these decayed farms and decayed cities being raised up in numerous different metaphors for these chapters that we've already covered. And that saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. This God gives the details of how Babylon was overthrown in one night. Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers, that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He will take care of my church, and shall perform all my pleasure. He'll do every good thing that I have in store for my people to get them released from this prison house of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. He will even say to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Cyrus the second of Persia is going to be so great, he's going to deliver you out of Babylon. The most conservative member, uh, the most conservative measures are Isaiah saying this at the end of his life as Manasseh takes the kingdom after Hezekiah's death. It is 100 years before Cyrus is born. Cyrus took Babylon at the age of 61. So it's 160 years before the event. The most conservative way that we look at Bible chronology. If Isaiah prophesied this earlier in his ministry, then it just adds years to it. To the extent of this wonderful, wonderful prophecy. God would say to the deep, be dry. How did he do it? The Median and Persian Army Corps of Engineers got the idea. You know, that 40 square mile depression and pond that they have 40 miles up the Euphrates that they used to run off excess water to keep Babylon from being flooded in times of heavy rain, what if we were to divert the waters of the Euphrates into that depression, shallow that river up, and march our armies into Babylon from both ends? And they did in water that was at the middle of their thighs. Herodotus, the father of modern history, and other historians have written about the details of it. The tremendous engineering feat by the Army Corps of Engineers of Media and Persia and how they took that city. And it's God gave them the idea and God blessed them to accomplish it. And so in this chapter, it is be dry. In the next chapter, it is leave the gates open. (laughs) You need both. And it's in two chapters. This one is be dry and I will dry up thy rivers. They had that Euphrates running through Babylon, running around Babylon to to fill its moats. Do you remember? And they used it for their agricultural purposes in the area. 
And so the Lord dried it up with the Army Corps of Engineers of, Syria, of Persia and Media. And the Lord says of Cyrus, now this is a name written in the Bible by Isaiah, a hundred years before Cyrus II was born. We hope and trust, though we don't know for sure, we hope and trust that Daniel took Isaiah to Cyrus and showed him. That saith of Cyrus, God, Jehovah, he is my shepherd. God can use anyone to be our shepherd. He doesn't have to be a Christian. Cyrus never converted. Cyrus never made a change in religion. So you say, that is, that is nearly impossible to believe. I know, it's impossible to believe it about Nebuchadnezzar as well. Because if Nebuchadnezzar wrote Daniel chapter 4, at least for five minutes, the man really had his wits together. And it may, it may have only been five minutes to get that letter published. Because Cyrus had it together to write this. The God of heaven, the God of heaven hath given me the kingdoms of the world and hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Those of you people that want to go back and rebuild your city and rebuild that temple to God, you're welcome to go. Right. And so you can read that in the last two verses of 2 Chronicles 36 that closes out those historical books. And you can read it in the first two verses, first four verses of Ezra chapter 1. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. He's going to do everything that I have planned for Israel, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built. A pagan king saying, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. I want any Jew that wants to go back, you are free to leave. You're under no tax obligation. You don't have to file a tax return from Israel for our nation. Just go home and rebuild that city and rebuild that temple to the God of heaven that has enabled me in all my victories and has given me all the kingdoms of the world. And so that's Isaiah 44. What a God we have. Amen. He's the king of nations. He takes some men by, by, their, by his right hand, holds their right hand, like he did Cyrus. He's going to tell us that in chapter 45 and uses them to be the shepherd of his people. Yes. Even though he wasn't saved. You know, we, we look at George Washington and other men like that, and, you know, we can make an argument for the fact that he may have been saved, he may have been baptized by John Gano the Baptist in the Valley Forge days, and he may not have been. But you know what? He's still the father of our nation, and he gave us a nation where we get to worship just like this today. Right. And we're very blessed. God's raised up all kinds of shepherds. When you read the news, are you able to read between the lines and see what God's doing? Because he's doing a lot. And it's fun to watch him. It's fun to watch Isaiah 44, 25 be fulfilled in the Democrat Party in the last two weeks. And it's wonderful to see shepherds raised up to take care of our nation right. and we've got one right now and the shepherd we have right now doesn't like wolves very much and he lets them know it about 10 times a day but let's look at let's look at history let's look at current events the way that we should let's worship this god right. let's celebrate and shout let's sing with our with volume and joy about the great salvation this is only a type listen brethren we were captive in a palace of the devil and Jesus, the Son of God, was sent to rescue us. Right. And it's far greater of a deliverance than what we can read about here. But we should see both and understand that Isaiah was looking forward 
and he saw the rise of the great event of Cyrus, but behind it, he saw one even higher of Christ, the Messiah. And we know him. We know his mother's name. We know his brothers and his sisters. We know everything about him. And he's coming for us soon. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.